Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation, which takes some of the uh, findings and recommendations from the report entitled An Incomplete Project, Australians' Views on the US Alliance. Uh, this report was authored by Professors Andrew O'Neill, Caitlin Byrne, uh, Peter Dean and Stefan Froehling and funded by the Department of Defence. Uh, today, we are joined by uh, two of those authors, Professors Andrew O'Neill and Caitlin Byrne, um, but we're also joined by uh, Dr Tess Newton-Kane, who is the project lead for the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute. And today we wanted to really dive into a conversation around Australians' views of the US alliance, in particular about uh, Australia's immediate region and engagement with the Pacific, a really interesting thread that came through the research um, through this consultative approach. Uh, so we're going to dive into that today, have a conversation around the findings and the recommendations. And we're so excited and grateful that Tess, you could join us today uh, to, to dive into some of those key findings and issues and, and really tease out what they mean for the Alliance. So to start us off today, I think perhaps we could turn to you, Andrew, just to explain what those findings were from the report, in particular, the ones that were relevant around the Pacific and regional engagement. Thanks very much, Scott. And uh, look, it's great to, great to be here today. I guess um, I would sort of start off by saying that uh, essentially our consultations showed that Overwhelmingly, most Australians support the alliance with the United States. I think that's uh, you know important to get that in, in the mix straight away. However, uh, when we probed a little deeper, because you know that finding generally maps to a lot of the polling that's been done by Lowy, the US Study Centre, and some of the Australian Election Study polling. Um, so that didn't come as a huge surprise to us, but. Uh, I think what uh, became more evident as we as we dug down were, were some of the uh, different categories underlying that. So we have full supporters, those who are largely, if not completely, unqualified in their support. We have reserve supporters who are qualified. They have certain qualifications in support for the alliance. Then we have sceptics, people who you know, generally speaking, sort of see benefits, but are but are but are more sceptical. And then we have opponents who think the alliance is essentially antithetical to Australia's interests. And so when we um, dug even further uh, into the views of uh, the people we consulted with, uh, we found a number of sort of key findings in, in the project. And there are there are four or five here before I'll, I'll just sort of touch on before I, you know, I, before I hand over to Caitlin. So the first is really that Australians want a broader-based alliance. They want an alliance that addresses non-traditional security threats, not just defence and traditional security. And of course, the big the big one here is climate uh, climate action, uh, climate security. That's what people uh, really see uh, the Australia-US alliance as needing to focus on uh, increasingly. Uh, the other one too is that Australians. Another finding is that Australians place strong emphasis on the transactional nature of, of the alliance. What's in it for us? Um, and a sort of a repudiation of a values-led uh, alliance. So most Australians that, who we consulted with kind of aren't convinced at all by the idea of, of sort of shared values between Australia and the US. They're much more focused on a pragmatic lens, uh, what's in it for Australia from a national interest perspective. Australians are also uncertain about the practical significance of commitments in the alliance. What does it actually entail and what does it actually oblige or commit Australia to do in a crisis situation? There was uncertainty around that. 
Another key finding was in relation to Australians not really being sure what the alliance means for sovereignty and the capacity to make independent decisions. There was some uncertainty uh, around that and sovereignty loomed large. And uh, when we think of issues like AUKUS, for example, which um, uh, really have been in the news since September 2021, a lot of the Australians we spoke to, while they might support AUKUS or be uh, ambivalent about AUKUS, most of them believe that, you know, there are, it does raise question marks about Australian sovereignty. And so I guess one last finding that I'll, I'll just sort of close off my comments on here is that supporters and, the, and opponents of the alliance, supporters and opponents of the alliance are concerned about the re-emergence of, of Trump or someone like Trump. And that for us speaks to a broader, or I should say for the people we consulted with, speaks to a broader uh, ambivalence, I guess, about the US system and the differences in, in, in value sets around things like reproductive health, gun control, and even uh, the nature of democracy itself and how it's administered domestically. So there is a view that, yes, we're in an alliance with the United States, but, you know, there are important values that actually separate Australia from the US and that this could pose a challenge and, and you know, having uh, a, a, tr a Trump or someone like Trump in the mix um, uh, following the next presidential election could actually threaten the alliance. But but as to the immediate region, I'm Caitlin, you, you may have some views around that. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks, Scott, for your opening. It's really great to be here joining you from the lands, traditional lands of the Turrbal and Jagera peoples here in Brisbane. And fantastic to have Tess on board with us as well. So uh, I know we'll get to, to Tess in just a second, but I guess just to pick up on, on some of Andrew's comments, one of the things that really did stand out for us across the board with these consultations was the fact that regardless of how they felt about the alliance, most of the participants in this study felt very strongly that Australia's priority should be um, thinking about and engaging with our region, our immediate region. And for most respondents, that immediate, immediate region included Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific. So I think that's a really important element for us to to kind of dig into. They've many respondents felt this should be the priority for Australian governments in thinking about their foreign policy. Those that that opposed the alliance, and and as Andrew mentioned, there was were a small group of those felt that in fact the alliance might well be holding us back from genuine engagement in the region. I think these are important points to pick out, uh, unpack. Many, though, really felt that Australia hadn't built the kind of close relationships that it should have across the region. You know, although, as we know, the, the current government is thinking much more deeply about that engagement now, but by and large is under-delivering when it comes to leveraging the alliance for that regional engagement. Um, again, just to pick up on the point that this research was set against the backdrop of the government having just signed up to the AUKUS Pact, the announcement that was made by President Joe Biden, uh, UK President at the time, Boris, Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. A, a decision and an announcement that was made with enormous fanfare at the time but took our region by surprise, took many in Australia by surprise. And so these were some of the, the events playing out in the backdrop, and I think they reinforced some of the feelings that, that came through in the consultation. 
And so coming to this finding here and consistent with those comments there, whether people strongly supported the alliance or opposed the alliance, it was a common, consistent thread uh, that Australians thought we should be doing more in the region and doing more perhaps with or apart from the alliance within the region. And so I think now I'd, I'd love to speak with you, Tess, to reflect on your experience and expertise. Do these findings, these comments, do they surprise you? Are they consistent with discourse that you hear? What did you think about those? Thanks, Scott, and thank you to Andrew and Caitlin for inviting me to be part of this conversation. I think uh, the findings, in, in one sense, the findings are surprising in as much as generally the Pacific does not loom large in Australian thinking. Uh, foreign policy doesn't loom large in Australian thinking, and within the foreign policy ambit, the Pacific tends to struggle to get any sort of bandwidth at all. However, this research and what we've seen in Australia recently is something of a, a new uncharted territory. So we've got to remember that, you know, if we think uh, forwards from the research during the uh, federal election last year, the issue around Solomon Islands signing a security agreement with China was so big that it actually interrupted, you know, it became a federal election talking point. Now, that is unheard of, that during federal election campaigns, anybody would be thinking about Solomon Islands or anywhere in the Pacific. I think that that is an, you know, that is indicative of the heightened level of awareness in the Australian community of the, the region. Um, and we've seen that by reference to increased media activity. I think we've had two or three 60 Minutes shows done in, in Vanuatu and Solomon Islands in Papua New Guinea. Uh, there's a lot more uh, media focus. We've had more journalists going to things like the Pacific Islands Forum, certainly since COVID. So these are, you know, that that kind of heightened awareness that, that you know, places like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Vanuatu, they're getting more mentions in mainstream media than than has been the case for, for a very long time. Now, there is a there is a counterpoint to that, which is what is driving that increased interest. And uh, certainly based on the conversations I have in places like Fiji and Vanuatu, where I was three weeks ago and meeting with Pacific colleagues, there is still, and, and I think understandably and quite rightly, a concern or certainly a recognition that what is driving that is this sense of, well, you know, it's about China. It's the but China question. So that is what is driving this increased interest in the Pacific. I think this come back, comes back to one of the points Andrew made about the transactional nature of Australian thinking. Uh, and that certainly is very much seen in the Pacific and, and how these conversations are often framed. It's about transactionalism. It's about what can we give the police in Solomon Islands that means they like us more than they like China or that, you know, how can we get in and, you know, make sure, you know, we'll buy the Digicel network so that some vague possible Chinese buyer doesn't get it. You know, it's very much around that kind of how can we manage the transactions in the hope that that then by managing those transactions, that when we add all the transactions together, that will lead to what we want, which is a sense of influence or a sense of security. So I think that um, 
I think that that to that extent, like I'm not surprised. I think I think it is I think it is interesting that given the amount of increased activity that we've seen in the region, and whilst you know we look to what this current government's doing, but if you look to what the previous government was doing, they were the ones that introduced this specific step up, and there was a lot of activity in the region that essentially only COVID brought an end to, but we had seen a huge number of visits by the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and other ministers into the region, much more participation by all Australian ministers with their, meeting with their ministerial counterparts in the Pacific. So COVID kind of put a break on that, and then now we see this new uh, new government continuing with that work, Possibly, you know, I don't know that the quantum's necessarily changed, but certainly there does seem to be a difference in tone and approach. So I think given that there has been that increased lift of activity, I think what is interesting is that your respondents and the Australian public still wants more. And I think that that then leads to the question. I think that leads to two questions, you know, it, but, and again, it's a quantum and a quality issue. It's like, what more do they want in terms of activities or engagements or projects or whatever it is? But also, what more do they want in terms of the way in which these engagements are structured and, and carried out? What, what, what are they looking for in terms of the quality of those relationships, the tone with which Australian officials engage with their Pacific counterparts? Is, you know, how, to what extent is that feeding into their sense of still wanting more? Caitlin, Andrew, were there any follow-up questions or comments perhaps on some of uh, what Tessa shared there? I might jump in on that because I think um, there is a really important point to be thinking about in terms of taking this forward. And one of the experiences, quite separately to the consultations that I've certainly had, and I think Tess, you may have had as well, is hearing a, a, a remark sometimes made by policymakers from the US that if you want to understand the Pacific, go to Australia and talk to Australians. Um, actually, I think one of the things that we need to think about is if you want to understand the Pacific, go to the Pacific and, and talk with policymakers, people, civil society leaders, media, church leaders in the Pacific. And I think that's uh, there is certainly an opportunity in, in given the interest that I think many Australians now have in the immediate region to really think about how we engage and how we understand and how we listen. I, I think that's, for me, a really important part of what we've gained out of this project and the recognition that that listening has to be taken beyond our shores in some cases. Um, I think, you know, Tess and Andrew may want to speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, look, I think that... Um that within the Pacific, and I think, you know, you mentioned the Southwest Pacific, and that's countries like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, and obviously they are the ones that probably Australia thinks about most often when it thinks about the Pacific. But it's important to remember that those countries sit within a wider grouping, whether it's the Pacific Islands Forum or however that's described, and they, their thinking is influenced by the... Um, the heritage and the experiences of other countries. So their thinking, particularly at the Pacific Islands Forum level, is influenced by things like the nuclear legacy for countries in like Kiribati and um, Marshall Islands. So even though that's not their legacy, they're still very cognizant of that legacy and that still feeds into their thinking. And of course, 
Solomon Islands has its own issue around the legacy of World War II with unexploded ordnance. And, and as we've seen just recently, this is a huge issue for them. So all of this feeds into a very con complicated and quite uh, complex perception of where Australia, where the US sits in relation to the region and where Australia sits. And I think it, may, it, it poses a really thorny issue for Australia. Because on the one hand, Australia obviously has this alliance with the US, which is the backbone of its security position, um, and it wants to support that uh, alliance. But on the other hand, I think Australia and Australian policymakers need to be aware that there's a lot of concern in the region about the, what the US is doing, uh, the speed at which it may or may not be moving, the extent to which it can be relied upon, all of those things. and you know, Australia runs the risk of being seen, you know, I think Australia runs the risk. I heard it said to me, in fact, I heard it said to me uh, the other day in Canberra by a very senior person in the Pacific who basically said that in their perception, Australia needed to choose, uh, was it a member of AUKUS or was it a member of uh, the Pacific Islands Forum? But the, to their thinking, um, the two could not be maintained compatibly. Now, that's quite a that's quite an extreme position. I haven't heard that said across the board, but these types of conversations are ongoing. There's a lot of concern about AUKUS. There's a lot of concern about what it means and, and how destabilizing it is for the region. There's a lot of concern that small Pacific Island countries fe are feeling like the amount of activity and the level of engagement and the you know, the constant visits and all of these things are, are kind of bullying, not bullying them, but corralling them into making a strategic choice that they do not feel comfortable making and that they do not want to make. And Australia's position in this is really quite um, particular and, and very significant. You're quite right, Caitlin. You know, I hear it from American interlocutors all the time about, oh, well, you know, we're coming to Australia because you've got all the experts. And my kind of thing is, like, I think I suggest you keep on moving because the experts are out there in these countries. That's where the experts live. I know on, Austra on the Australian side, there are some concerns about the American approach and, and you know, whether it's going to be beneficial or not. Um, and I think that, you know, I think there is also... In the middle of this, there is this kind of unspoken tension around whilst on the on the surface, the Americans are saying it's great to have the Australians on board. They're the experts. We can you know, they can teach us about the region. But the under the unspoken bit of this is. We left this to Australia. They've stuffed it up. Now we have to come in and fix it. And I think that that tension is is playing out in different different ways. And so. It, may, it makes for, you know, it makes for a very complex environment or an increasingly complex environment. It was already complex. It's increasingly complex. But I think it's really important to remember that Pacific interlocutors carry with them um, a whole range of imperatives, a whole range of colonial memory and post-colonial memory that informs a lot of this. And, you know, Australia does run the risk of being seen as a, a US proxy. It's kind of always run that risk, but this I think that risk is heightened at the moment. Yeah, I might I might just add just a few thoughts in, into that. I mean, Tessa's reflections, you know, I, I think 
one one of the reflections towards the, towards the end of Tess's comments was around Australia's obligations or its sort of commitments as an ally. And I think, I think in in a sense, you know, the fact that you do have an intensification of U.S.-China geostrategic rivalry that is playing out in the Southwest Pacific um, tends to underscore or or sort of highlight. Um, I guess that's sort of the two-speed nature of Australia's engagement in in the region, and that is, on the one hand, you know Australia is seen, uh, you know, this is this is Australia's patch un, under the under the under the alliance with the United States, but more broadly under the Five Eyes uh, arrangements, um, you know, the South Pacific is Australia's patch. It needs to look after that. It's it's its responsibility, and I think Tess is right when she says that. There's certainly perception in DC that the, I think it's fair to say, the previous government, the Morrison government, um, you know, didn't handle that, uh, wasn't handling that well. And then you have the intervention of people like Kirk Campbell and and others, and the US kind of fessing up and saying, well, look, we've kind of let our diplomatic presence in the region run down over time. That was a mistake. We need to fix that. And so, and so I think, and so I think there's that side of Australia's engagement in the region. I would, I would not classify that as a proxy of the US. I think it's more Australia playing its role in the alliance uh, to ensure that um, in in the contemporary context that that frankly China is not a new colonial power in the region. And I, and I think that's that's a legitimate concern, not just by Australia in the US, but but also on the part of some um, in, in the Pacific as well. Um, but I think the second aspect of this, and I think this is where the Albanese government is perhaps, dare I say, it, stepping up, uh, is is highlighting, I guess, the non-alliance dimension of this, and that Australia has its own national interests here. That you know, most of which dovetail with the alliance, but some don't. And so, Australia seeking to engage more effectively bilaterally uh, and through um, the Pacific Islands Forum with countries in the region, you know, I think uh, is long overdue. It, it harks back to me probably to the Hawke government's approach, which was, yes, we have alliance responsibilities in the South Pacific and we'll do our bit with the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. We'll, we'll kind of, you know, we'll take care of nuclear interests there. But actually there are a whole range of other things that we're, we're not necessarily going to, you know, toe the US line on. Uh, in, environmental issues, for example, um, you know, other issues as well. So I, I think we can probably expect a little bit more of that from the Albanese government. Uh, I think Labor governments tend to have a bit more, you know, that they, they, they do tend to be more conscious of that of that binary, that binary in Australia's approach, alliance obligations here, national kind of uh, objectives here, bilater bilateral objectives uh, in terms of raising Australia's um, pursuing Australia's national interests, if I could put it like that, in the region. I, I, just to build on that, sorry, and then I'll hand to you, Tess, for the last word, is is I wonder if it's a binary approach or a being multidimensional, really thinking about our foreign policy as a much more complex and complicated spectrum of alignments, uh, alliances, relationships, and 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 interests and influence, and and being a little bit more cleverly calibrated in the way that we we leverage those, use those different levers. Yeah, so Andrew, I was first of all going to um, pick you up on your use of the term our patch. 
I've uh, just about managed to convince Gareth Edwards, Gareth Evans rather, to stop using that term. I mean, I think this is part of the issue is that, you know, the choice of language and the way that people think and talk about the region is really can be really problematic. And the, the, the Pacific is not anybody's patch. It's not anybody's backyard. The Pacific is, you know, the Blue Pacific is its is its own collection of sovereign states with its own uh, strategic position and its own strategic thinkers and thinking. And and I think that the sooner the sooner we can get to the point where people engage on that basis, the better. I mean, you know, I never heard, I never hear Southeast Asia referred to as Alpatch. Um, the, the, the thought that uh, Australian policymakers or Australian media would talk about Southeast countries, Southeast Asian countries in the way that they talk about Solomon Islands or, or Vanuatu is unheard of. And I think that that's a really, you know, it's a really kind of important indicator. And it's one that sets my, you know, my radar going. But I think the other the other issue is um, when you know you, you mentioned things like the South Pacific nu- uh, nuclear free zone and the Rarotonga Treaty. This is this is like um, it's really hard to overstate the significance of that to the Pacific. I think it's really important to remember that the reason the Pacific Islands, one of the reasons that the Pacific Islands Forum was formed, was because in the South Pacific Commission, which was the U.S. Australia, France, the UK and New Zealand, in that in that forum, Pacific Island leaders were not allowed to talk about the stuff that they were concerned about, which included nuclear testing in their region. And one of the reasons that Ratumara led the walkout and set up what is now the Pacific Islands Forum was we need somewhere we, we can talk about what's important to us. And that was what that was one of the things it was decolonization and it was um, nuclear testing. And those those issues are still live issues in the Pacific. Uh, You know, the the forum countries are lobbying for Japan to defer this discharge of nuclear uh, treated nuclear waste into the ocean. So these are not these are not matters of ancient history. These are very much live conversations. And I think that in order for uh, Australia to be able to participate in the Pacific family or to be a full and active member of the Pacific Islands Forum, so not the not just the financier but a member, there needs to be this real deep understanding of why these issues are important. And the geo the Pacific Islands Forum members, of which Australia is one, have made it very clear what their concerns are when it comes to security. And that's captured in the Boy Declaration. And they've made it very clear that what they see as their number one security threat are the impacts of climate change. So I think, again, you touched on the fact that the the Australian consultations had shown that there needed to be a, a bigger aspect to this alliance and climate security is one of those key issues. And that's where that's where there's a, a really important conversation to be had with the Pacific as full partners and as full participants, not as a our patch or you look after them, we'll look after these. But as you know, this is a global challenge and we need to work together as global partners. I think these comments all speak to the very real complexity 
Um, but importance of, of doing engagement, but doing it right. Um, so I think this is a really, really wonderful conversation. If we can shift our attention to uh, some of the recommendations of the report, I note that um, several of the recommendations in the report actually are very relevant to um, these questions and issues that we've raised. So if I could turn Andrew to you just to speak to what some of those recommendations may be, and Caitlin, you can speak to those as well. Um, before we turn back to you, Tess, to, to ask questions about, well, how, how should Australia proceed from here? Yeah, thanks, Scott. So, I, I mean, it probably comes as no surprise that the recommendations map quite closely to the findings. Um, so one of our kind of key recommendations is that um, government needs to be, when I say government, the federal government, which uh, has oversight of, um, uh, I guess, sort of custodianship of the alliance, needs to define more actively what the alliance is for, not just what it's against. So, you know, what, you know, yes, we know that the Alliance is serves, certainly serves an important purpose in safeguarding um, Australia's security, uh, certainly in a time where China is becoming uh, more assertive uh, through military modernization programs, but also in the region in terms of uh, seeking to uh, advance its policy objectives. So um, we know that, but we also know that uh, for Australians themselves, there is um, there is a desire to broaden to broaden the alliance. And um, again, as I said before, in relation to non-traditional security threats, not just traditional security. Again, I think looking looking towards how uh, Australia uh, Australian governments can can perhaps more effectively underscore the importance of sovereignty. Um, so, for example explaining to the Australian population that Australia chooses to have an alliance with the United States because uh, it's in the country's sovereign interest to do so, uh, and that uh, from a national interest perspective, a cost-benefit perspective, to use that sort of transactional, transactional language, it just makes sense to do that. Uh, and even supporters uh, who we interacted with were keen to see greater emphasis on, on Australia's sovereignty and the way we talk about the alliance. Focusing more on interests rather than values, uh, a, a key finding in our consultations, as I mentioned before, was that, you know, rules-based order, um, shared values doesn't really wash with, with Australians who we interacted with. It's not to say they're not relevant. Is just that they're not particularly prominent or salient in the thinking of uh, Australians and, and how we think about the alliance. It's much more focused on uh, core interests, being uh, being pragmatic about, frankly, what a small ally can get out of an alliance with a major power. And finally, uh, but by no means least, um, our recommendation is, uh, sorry, two more, uh, maintain a uh, focus on uh, Australia's immediate region. Caitlin's spoken really eloquently about uh, the importance of, of, of doing that uh, and not perhaps getting, um, you know, sort of getting carried away on, on missions in, in the Middle East where a lot of our focus should really be on our immediate region. And finally, uh, but by no means least, enabling deeper consultation among Australians uh, on the alliance. The former Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Peter Shergold, said several years ago that one of the key ingredients to successful policy is consulting with those whom the policy is going to impact. And we we really, um, you know, we strongly believe uh, Shergold's uh, advice and, and we recommend in our report that the Australian government should really take that to heart in the way it approaches alliance management with the US.
Um, Scott, I might just pick up on on those last points that Andrew's mentioned, and 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 also the point that that Tess made before about the value of language. I think listening in a public policy context can inform the kind of approach you take and the language you use. We did hear from people, um, skeptics and opponents of the alliance in particular, that the language around Australia's role as a deputy sheriff, for example, in Southeast Asia, wasn't necessarily seen as being helpful. It's not dissimilar to um, you know, the, the point Tess made about the language of our patch. So I think that point of listening um, both in a domestic context and in a wider context, actually plays an important role. It doesn't mean, you know, that necessarily the views of all Australians are going to be reflected in foreign policy, but it does inform in a really important way the way that policy is designed and developed and crafted. And I think that's something listening is um, also seen as, as the core pillar of public diplomacy, and we can do public diplomacy at home as much as we can do it overseas. And so looking at this fifth recommendation in particular, to maintain a focus on Australia's immediate region, Tess, how do we do that? And how do we do it well? What are your <laughs> thoughts on these recommendations that we've just discussed? So, I mean, I think it's a huge question. I think it's a really important question. I think, um, I think the, you know, I think that there are some kind of key fundamentals um, around this. And I actually think that it needs to start with the how and the why before we worry too much about the what. So we we hear a lot about the what, you know, so it's about more development assistance. It's about labour mobility. It's about uh, opening up new diplomatic missions or sending, you know, you know, more calls by ships or, you know, so, you know, there's, there's you know, you can have endless lists. And one of my criticisms of the Pacific Step Up previously has been that it it wasn't a strategy. It was a list. So, you know, we could, you know, but before underpinning all of that or kind of before you get too carried away about that, I think it's really about the how and it's really about the the overall kind of like the the overall philosophy or the overall tone with which this engagement is taken forward. And I think when we when people talk about the Pacific here in Australia and elsewhere, um, you know, there's we hear a lot about capacity deficits and the need for capacity development. I think for Australia and Australian policymakers, including those who have Pacific in their job titles, there is still a lot more work to be done about building capacity here at home before launching out into the region. I think there needs to be a great deal of self-reflection um, and self-critique of the way in which um, the Pacific is perceived, the way in which people think about the Pacific, the way in which people talk about the Pacific. I think there needs to be a recognition that there is a huge gap when it comes to Pacific literacy in Australia, a, a, a huge gap in the understanding of the history, what Australia's role is in that history, you know, how many Australians know that um, they were the colonizer, the final colonial authority for both Nauru and Papua New Guinea. How many Australians understand the impact of blackbirding and what that means for relationships with countries like Solomon Islands and Vanuatu? These are all really key bits of knowledge that need to be understood before you then launch into, well, what do Pacific Island people do? You know, what do they care about? What languages do they speak? How do they make their living? What are the, what sports do they play? you know, what religions do they practice, you know, just just a general understanding 
of the Pacific. This is where Australians live. This is the region that they live in. And they need to have much more of an understanding. And there also needs to be a recognition that a lot of what has gone before, and some of which is rusted on, it is premised on a, a, a very concerning mix of um, racism and general lack of respect. And that feeds into how uh, Pacific leaders are treated, how Pacific people are treated, the extent to which Pacific people are invited into conversations, the levels of trust between Pacific agencies and Australian agencies. I heard very recently uh, a, something I've heard lots of times before, which is, you know, you tell us you want us to, you, you, it's all about sharing information, but you don't share information with us. You you take our information and you do what, but you don't give any back. You don't trust us with security information, transnational crime information, all of these things. So, you know, I think it's really about building a sense of understanding that, that you know, when we say partnership, we really, we really mean it. And we understand that, uh, particularly when it comes to these non-traditional security threats, that, you know, the Pacific is, is, a, is a source of expertise. Uh, when it comes to climate diplomacy and climate, global climate action, Pacific Island countries are global leaders and they've they've become that without any help from Australia. In fact, they've some of them have become that despite Australia doing their best to get in the way. So this is the kind of realisation that I think uh, the Australian community needs to undertake and, and also needs to hold its policymakers accountable to, that it needs to be calling out examples of policymakers not operating in this way and seeking for better engagement, seeking for much better quality engagement that's based on true respect and understanding and, and recognising that, that that quality of relationship is something that takes time to build. And I think that is a concern at the moment, that things are moving very fast and things are changing quite frequently and that there's almost this sense of, well, we haven't got time. We haven't got time to do that listening. We haven't got time to build the relationships and, you know, Whilst on the one hand that may make sense, from an overall strategic point of view, it's 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 a mistake and a misstep and needs to be avoided and rectified. Now, given that I wasn't an author on this report, I feel I can ask quite a um, spiky question, if I may. Tess, do you think um, our engagement within the region is helped or hindered by closeness with the United States? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, I think the answer to that, you know, I'm a lawyer, so the answer is it depends. Um, I think I think that the, you know I think there is scope for it to be beneficial if Australia is able and willing to position itself as a member of the Pacific family, as a, a full member of the forum, and be able to take it to the US as to what that means and what it doesn't mean. I think there is I think there is a hope among some in the Pacific that Australia uh with its its, its extra presence or its increased presence and with its experience can kind of mitigate some of the the more you know overwhelming aspects of the US engagement because it can seem a bit overwhelming. I think there's, on the other hand, there's also the hope that Australia, if, you know, if Australia is going to be in AUKUS and the partners for the Blue Pacific 
that don't have any Pacific Island members, that Australia will take on the responsibility of conveying Pacific concerns and Pacific um, priorities without necessarily filtering them through a, a Canberra lens, but be able to say, well, this is what our counterparts in the Pacific are telling us. Um, you know, and that might be around things like, you know, trying to speed up the uh, the US response to this issue of unexploded ordnance in Solomon Islands. You know, the US people tell me, oh, you know, this is a real priority. We're moving really quickly on this. And it's like, well, it doesn't look quick to us. It may seem quick to you, but, you know, how can Australia do that? But at the same time, and this is where I think that, you know, this is where this this problem or this this snarly issue around the Australian approach to the Pacific is problematic because, you know, can can people in the Pacific really trust that Australian policymakers and Australian officials will say to their American counterparts, actually, do you know what we need to do now? Let me go away and find some Pacific experts for you to come and for me to bring so that you can hear from them. You know, can we trust um, Australian institutions, including those that work at the heart of the defence and security community, can we trust them to do that? They, I, and my feeling is that they are learning slowly and some are getting better than others. But overall, I don't think that that is something that can be um, expected of Australian officialdom. I think it behoves others of us in, in other parts of the, the firmament to try and do more of that. I think we could come to a, a couple of concluding remarks now as well. It's been a thread, not just of this conversation, but the report as well, to listen to the voices of the Australian people, to find the Australian perspective. Uh, and we've spoken even today about the importance of listening, listening um, to the Australian people, listening to um, those who policy impact, listening to the Pacific. And in conversations even external to this one, I know, Tess, you've spoken about the speed at which things are moving, but the real importance of, of listening to the Pacific. Perhaps that's um, something you could speak to as we, we conclude today's conversation. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, one of the things that um, I've touched on in other conversations of which you know, my Pacific colleagues remind me of frequently is Australia's Australia's struggle with engaging in a Pacific way, in, in engaging uh, in a way that is culturally resonant for the Pacific. And the listening part is, is really important of this. So, you know, in some parts of the Pacific, in Fiji, you will hear the term Talanoa or talk story in, in Solomon Islands, but it's really about recognising that when we come together to listen and to talk, that sharing of knowledge is a is a has a great deal of cultural significance. So, you know, a, a Nivaluati friend of mine once said, you know, white people share their knowledge and hold on to their wealth, but in Melanesia, we hold on to our knowledge and share our wealth. So when Pacific people choose to share knowledge and choose to share their thinking, it is an act of generosity. It is an act of giving. And I think that when we engage in listening, um, obviously it needs to be deep listening, but it also needs to be a recognition that this is a, a reciprocal process that we're engaged in now. And how is that? How is that generosity of sharing of thinking? How is that being acknowledged? And how is it being reciprocated? So I think that's something that still still needs to be worked through in in Australian diplomacy and 
engagement strategies. And I think the other thing, and I've said this a few times before, is that whether it's the the US or Australia or the US and Australia together, when engaging with the Pacific, I think there needs to be uh, much more readiness and willingness to be able to hear things that may be uncomfortable, um, that may include critique of pre- what's happened previously, but also conversations that are really important in the Pacific that often get closed down by others. So that might be around you know, self-determination in West Papua or the nuclear legacy in the in the northern Pacific or, you know, other other issues to do with labor mobility. You know, there are these are big concerns for Pacific people and they have a range of things to say and and they need to feel, I think they need to feel encouraged and supported in in recognizing that all of their perspectives are valid rather than feeling like they have to say the right thing to keep people happy. I'd love to thank you so much, Tess, for joining us for this conversation. It's Dr. Tess Newton-Kane, the project lead of the Pacific Hub at Griffith Asia Institute. I'd also love to uh, thank Professors Andrew O'Neill and Caitlin Byrne for joining us today as we've uh, discussed the findings and recommendations of the report entitled uh, An Incomplete Project, Australians' Views on the Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us today.